This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. I think it stands out because it was such an odd case. I mean, who builds a bunker in the woods for close to 10 years that the family doesn't have a clue about? You're listening to episode 18, The Bunker. Rattlesnake Ridge in the Pacific Northwest is a really popular hiking destination, but it wasn't on this day. April 27, 2012, the mountain had been closed to the public and in the high elevation, 1,300 feet above sea level. Biblical gusts of wind, pelting hail, and sleet rained down on three SWAT teams who were on the hunt for a fugitive. But first, they'd have to find his secret bunker. They were hours into an arduous and stealthy operation when an operative finds a power bar wrapper on a log. He radios to the squad that the packaging appears fresh. And given that the SWAT team is engulfed by wilderness with the safety of the trailhead miles away, they know this wouldn't be a place that a recreational hiker would ever venture to on purpose. It wouldn't be long before the smell of wood smoke caught their attention. They followed their noses until wisps of smoke became visible, and through their high-powered scopes, they found the proverbial needle in a haystack, a camouflaged pipe sticking out of the forest floor. The SWAT leader signals for his men to halt as he crouches down, and radios dispatch, we found the bunker. They didn't know it then, but getting there had been the easy part. Smoking out the killer would be a whole nother thing altogether. We don't know if he's off somewhere with a rifle and a scope, take any of them out. He could be anywhere. We don't know if he's got video cameras. We don't know anything. That's former King County Sheriff's Detective Robin Cleary. And that moment in time was the culmination of an investigation that had actually begun five days before. When a 911 call was made at 8.43 in the morning on April 22nd, 2012. Yeah, 9.20 a.m. Uh, I drive out to North Bend. Takes a while. North Bend is definitely a ways out there. About 30 minutes away from Seattle Metro, it's a place where a person could get lost in the woods on accident or on purpose. The ideal place for David Lynch to film Twin Peaks his cult classic murder TV series back in 1989, where the homecoming queen's body was found by a logger, naked, wrapped in plastic, on a riverbank just outside of the fictitious small town Twin Peaks. But the real town, North Bend, with its rural, small-town feeling, has changed a bit since the 1990s, but not that much. In fact, Tweed's Cafe still serves its famous cherry pie. A nice big piece of cherry pie. A cherry pie? Best in the Tri County. This must be where pies go when they die. 
So on the morning of the 22nd of April, homicide detective Robin Cleary has arrived at a yellow manufactured Rambler. It was Sunday and outside the home and around the neighborhood, it's chaotic with fire trucks and other first responders who'd been called to the scene after a neighbor had heard a fire alarm and saw smoke streaming from the roof vents of the home. The residence was the home of the Kellers, 41-year-old Peter, his 41-year-old wife, Lynette, and their 18-year-old daughter, Kayleen. The Kellers had lived there for seven years. Usually on a Sunday, Peter's red Toyota truck and Lynette's gray Toyota Corolla were in the carport. The family kept to themselves for the most part, but they were seen every day walking Dino, the family dog. When firefighters pulled up to the Kellers' home, the red truck was in the driveway, but the gray Toyota was gone. Of course, when they pulled up to the home, they didn't care about the vehicles. They just wanted to get inside the house and douse the flames. But the crew was having a tough go of it. The front door seemed to be barricaded. Improvising, they broke a window on the side of the house and made entry. But it wasn't for long. This wasn't a normal house fire. A few minutes after they entered, they rushed out of the home carrying two adult female victims. And in the light of day, away from the smoke-filled house, it was clear the victims' injuries weren't related to the fire. Because their bodies weren't burned, they had head trauma. Both victims were dead. Firefighters raced back into the house to knock down the flames. And as the smoke cleared, a troubling picture emerged. The front door had been deadbolted and barricaded with a stereo and other household supplies. And it appeared that someone had actually booby-trapped the home with gas cans, which had been strategically placed inside, set up to explode in a chain reaction. So everyone backs out and waits for a search warrant because it's no longer exigent because we already know there's two dead people that were pulled out of there. So we're not looking for anyone else in the house. Now it's a crime scene, we close it off. Plus, there's the booby trap issue, and we wait for a search warrant, bomb disposal, everything to go slowly, methodically. It was obvious there was something really off about this scene, especially when the bomb squad called out that they'd found what appeared to be a pipe bomb inside the safe that was in one of the bedrooms. The safe also contained a box of bullets and several CD-ROM cases. The bomb squad determined that the pipe bomb in the safe had no fuse, and so because the fire had stalled in the kitchen, it didn't go off. It appeared that the family's pets, a cat found under an end table, and a dog lying on the couch, had been shot. There were major red flags going on, and Robin, as the lead detective on the case, was debriefed with the firefighters. The younger victim, believed to be 18-year-old Kayleen Keller, was found on top of her bunk bed, and the other woman, thought to be her mother, Lynette, had been found with a blanket covering her in bed. When the firefighters threw back the cover, they could see brain matter and wounds to the head. It was critical that they found out in real time what had happened to these women. What we see on TV, Laura, we'll oh, see you yeah, back no. at the lab no. and then we'll go over it. Like you're looking, we wanna know how these people died. We need to know this right. immediately. I'm with the Emmy and firefighters being firefighters, they were very respectful of the women that were there. And so they were holding up tarps so that people couldn't see what we were doing. And so we had to f process on the scene, Lynette and Kayleen. And so we're going through and we're going to remove clothing, photograph 
the ME is carefully going over the body, looking for any wounds, looking for any evidence, photographing methodically as we go. I'm the one that's removing, helping to remove clothing and holding it up, letting them photograph, and then we're packaging it. What is that like? I mean, have you done it enough times to wear? Yes. So I've done it so many times. I don't know if I think I detach from what, I mean, I know that's two beautiful people that are laying there dead. It's sad, but I can't let that get to me. I can't think about who they were, who they are, who their family members are, who's going to grieve for them. I can't think of any of that. All I can do is process it methodically, carefully, so that I don't miss any evidence. We can't take sides. We can't get emotionally involved. We have a job, and we have to be good at it, and we have to do it the best way we can and be methodical so we don't miss something, so we don't let someone get off that should be going to jail because we made a mistake. There was no doubt that Kayleen and Lynette had been shot, execution style. Kayleen was shot behind the left ear, and, and um, Lynette was shot in front of the right ear and in the top of the head. And there was still a shell casing in her, we found in her hair. Pretty quickly, they found out that Peter and Lynette had been married since 1991 and that he didn't have a record. They needed to find Peter Keller. We don't know whether he's a victim. We don't know whether he's a witness. We don't know whether he's been kidnapped. We don't even know. Maybe he's just at work or out for a hike or whatever, going to get gross. I mean, we don't know. What's your gut telling you at this point? Is there any kind of open. gut check? Open. No, just, Still open. Okay. I mean, at that point, you just don't know. A bolo was issued within law enforcement to be on the lookout for the missing husband and the family's gray Toyota. When they called his phone, it was pretty obvious it was turned off. You always say the first suspect is going to be family, but at that point we have an open mind. So that's why we have people trying to find where he's at, calling cell phone, not getting anything. His cell data revealed that the last time he'd used his phone was the day before. We start looking at cell phone records, trying to do that, and there's very little cell phone records for him. What we find later is that he would only turn on his phone when he needed it. So it was, you could see him in North Bend at the house, you can see him Fall City at work, and then every once in a while you could see him pop up near, uh, like Tiger Mountain and Snoqualmie and... So is that sending up red flags, that that factor, is it... No, it's just really unusual. Mm -hmm. I mean, most people don't turn their cell phones off that often. Within a few hours of the murders, a deputy found the missing gray Toyota Corolla. It was parked near his family home at a school. The car was empty, and it was strange. The driver's side window was halfway rolled down, and the keys were in the ignition. The deputy placed a hand on the hood. It was cool to the touch. Obviously, it had been there a while. Weird that his truck is still at the scene, and the wife's tr- uh, car is now found with the keys in the ignition not that far away. So it's like, okay, we got to find him. Peter worked in tech and was employed at a company near North Bend. Investigators would quickly track down his boss, who said that he hadn't seen or talked to Peter since Wednesday because he'd taken some vacation days on Thursday and Friday. Peter's boss would also describe him as hardworking, just a regular employee, no problems. But Peter kept to himself. He didn't socialize with other staff members. They knew that he really enjoyed hiking, and he was a family man. 
Other co-workers were interviewed too, and one employee shared that Peter had bought a lot of guns and had a large supply of ammunition, which included at least 2,000 rounds, the type of ammunition that could pierce through police body armor. And they knew he also had a ballistic vest and a tactical one, which allowed the wearer to hold multiple gun magazines. On a video of him shooting an AR with uh, a silencer with his daughter. So he was out in the mountains, you know, firing off rounds. Here's the audio from that video where Peter Keller is shooting and Kayleen is standing near him, cheering him on. We'll be back after a quick break. Peter's co-workers shared with police that his wife, Lynette, didn't know a lot about his growing arsenal of weapons and ammo. But he seemed to echo the boss's sentiment that Peter was a private guy, but normal, that he hikes a lot and is rumored to have what Peter called a camp keller, a place in the woods where he could hole up for weeks if need be, but no one knew where it was or if it even existed. Another coworker shared that Peter Keller had once said to him, quote, I'm not happy to be here, referring to his job. He also said, I'm not happy to be alive. Keller's coworkers chalked up Peter's dark comments as, I guess, him trying to blow off steam. They knew he had stresses at home. He told them that Lynette was disabled or she needed extra medical help, but he never shared the details. And they also recalled that he brought his daughter, Kayleen, into work sometimes, and that when he did, he always seemed super proud of her. Investigators also spoke with relatives, who shared some of the details of Lynette's medical situation. She'd been injured on the job and took pain medication for her injuries that had left her disabled, and that Peter was stingy with his money and didn't give Lynette access to his accounts. In fact, if she needed money, she'd actually have to go to her dad or stepdad for expenses. Lynette had confided to a friend that she thought that Peter would leave her after Kayleen graduated, and that he hiked six to eight hour stretches every weekend. But Lynette said that she believed that Peter was devoted to their daughter. When relatives were asked about this Camp Keller, they didn't really know anything about it. Only Kayleen's boyfriend could shed any light, saying that, both Lynette and Kayleen had seen one photo of the fort, but didn't know anything about it. Within a few days of the murders, a forensic computer analyst who was working the case shared some intriguing photos that had been recovered from the safe. Remember the one that was booby-trapped to explode in the fire? As things are starting to just kind of be weird, we find CDs in the safe, we collect them. We find, you know, laptops. We find all sorts of stuff. We just start collecting everything. And our forensic computer person starts going through the CDs that we find. And she starts seeing pictures of what appears to be something being built in the side of a hill. But she doesn't know what it is. So it's like, hmm, okay. You know, this is days later. We're like, okay. And you still know no word of the potential suspect, the husband? No idea where he's at. At that point, we're like, okay, we can't find him. He's not come home. 
he's looking more like a suspect. So by that evening into the next day, it's starting to, you know, we're kind of like, okay, you know, no one's heard from him. His cell phone's not on. He hasn't checked in with anybody. And did you, I think that he had taken out $6,200 or something. We find out that he took out $6,200, which is another red flag. We're like, okay. And he took off that Friday from work and didn't tell, nobody knew. So he's looking very much like he's planning something or doing something or just like skipping town. Yeah. Things appeared even more grim when Kayleen's boyfriend described Peter Keller as having a doomsday mindset, a survivalist attitude. Another detective talks to Kayleen's boyfriend and, you know, just behavioral stuff, just kind of, you know, he was supposed to spend the night, I think, that night, but Peter said he just wanted it to be a family night. So he, you know, again, it's one of those, God, I could, you know, if I had been there, could I have stopped it? Or would I have been a victim? So he's got some... He's just processing Processing that. issues and, you know, freaked out himself. You know, he just lost his girlfriend and at the same time has got to be thinking, oh my God, you know, I could have, I could have been killed or could I have stopped it? It was at this point that investigators who had been poring over the pictures that had been found in the safe started putting two and two together. These pictures appeared to have been taken by Peter at the site of his so-called Camp Keller in 2004, eight years before the murders, and they showed a clear progression of some type of bunker construction. But the location of the bunker remained a mystery. It was a weird juxtaposition, Peter Keller's potential secret bunker alongside witness interviews that said that Peter was a devoted family man and loving father. Everybody's describing Peter as just hardworking, like avid hiker, and a family man. Loved his family. Four days after the murder of Lynette and Kayleen, Robin's partner began to key into a pattern. 2003, just photos up in the woods. In 2004, you see he's built, like, put in irrigation, and he's got flowing water coming out of the side of a hill. In later in 2004, you start to see, like, I think it's March 2004, you see where it's actually being, like, dug. September 2007, you see the framing of, of the bunker. At what point did you piece it together and think, this could be a bunker? Because when I was from the pictures that I saw, right. you, you see a square right. for the people who, you know, right. trying to visualize this in the side of a hill. It's like deep in the woods. I mean, describe yeah. uh, the terrain well, getting you, there. Well, we don't know. Because at that point, we have no idea. All we see are photos of a hillside and stuff like a, you see pictures of pipes being mm-hmm. put in, plastic piping. And then you see water flowing out of it, out of the side of a hill. So you're like, huh, what's that? But you don't have any context because all you see is dirt and shovels. And then this pipe sticking out with water coming out. The boyfriend of Kayleen, he describes Peter as an avid hiker, loved to go up in the hills, up in the mountains. Um, The computer forensics person, detective, is compiling all these photos and is like showing us like a progression. Detective Mellis keys in on a series of like, I think they're like six to eight photos. They're all in sequence. And it's almost like he stood right where this digging was and took 
pictures in a 360 of where he was. It was damning evidence that these photos were in the safe with the pipe bomb. And had the explosion actually worked, they would have gone up in flames. These are essentially his trophies. I mean, the, the photos of him, what he's created. Well, except that he was trying to destroy them because they were in the safe that was supposed to be, that was open, that should have been burnt in the fire. But we know, or you we know. We know he's taken the photos. Yes. yes. And he's taken them for himself because oh, he wants that gratification of this is what I did. And then, but he wants to get rid of it. Right. So he's trying so to put it out. he's trying to put it out. But I mean, yeah, I, I just think that it kind of shows his, yeah, he was I mean, really proud of his work and that's ultimately what led you guys to find right. him if, yeah. if, if, that, I mean, if you wouldn't have taken those photos if he had been as good an arsonist as he was a murderer and builder then we may not have found him for at least eventually we we would have but it could have taken a lot longer mm-hmm. than it did you wouldn't be looking for him in a bunker no you would be looking never for would him have... out of state right over you know yeah you know i have, mean he would have disappeared for a time he would have resurfaced somehow Mm -hmm. but it would have been a hell of a lot longer a process in finding him the photos were enhanced and the position of the power lines in the frame helped narrow down the location so did witnesses who came forward identifying the trailhead where keller's pickup had been seen on a regular basis Now that the team had isolated where the bunker could be and that Peter Keller was a suspect in the murder of his family, they took into consideration that he'd been described as a survivalist who could be a doomsday prepper and that he'd secretly collected a cache of guns ranging from long rifles, assault rifles, pistols, silencers, and that these weapons and his trove of ammunition hadn't been accounted for, and neither had the body armor. If he could murder his own wife and daughter, what else was he capable of? Keller had been constructing his bunker and his plans for eight years. Local law enforcement had less than a week to find him. On Friday, five days after Peter Keller had murdered his family, teams headed for the woods in no-nonsense all-terrain vehicles, which climbed up the Cascade foothills about 25 miles east of Seattle. Go in at like 6 o'clock in the morning, set up a incident command just in one of the, off one of the parking rides. So we close that off. We have all of our SWAT guys all geared up, tons of packs, Lots of stuff that they brought with them. I think if you were to talk to any of the SWAT guys now about that particular case, they would have traveled way lighter. They would have had more cold weather gear. They would have had more electrolyte fluids with them. The three SWAT teams had a general idea of where they believed the bunker could be, based on the power line photos and that the bunker was next to a stream. We had photos where this water is coming through and flowing through, so we knew we had to have a water source. We knew that it had to be a year-round stream because of the photos that we would see where the stream is going. It had to be old-growth forest because of the pictures of, of the trees that were there. As the teams scaled down the hill early that morning, they splintered off from each other, each following a different stream system throughout the heavily wooded forest that was blanketed with moss, tangled ferns, sprawling native vegetation that had the undisturbed freedom to grow almost into each other, unabated. You couldn't see the forest floor. Down trees were splayed out, cast asunder by a brutal storm that had hit a couple of weeks before, making the hillside nearly impassable at times. 
It was wet and muddy as the tactical teams hunkered down that mountainside quietly. Even when an officer slid, his leg got pinned under a large rock and sprained his ankle as the rain and hail poured down. After the team member was freed, limping, they continued on. Then, a deputy radioed to the squads that he found a power bar wrapper in a ravine that looked fresh. They knew it was unlikely that an average hiker would wander to this place. Peter's photo series of the bunker had been studied so intensely by the entire team that one of the SWAT members was able to recognize a unique stump, which is crazy in a forest full of trees. Then further down the stream, someone saw wisps of smoke. Was it just fog? Nope, they could smell wood smoke. The team slowly moved closer, using their noses to guide them as they looked for signs of the hidden bunker. At the top of another ridge, the horizon was scanned, and in the area below, a cut log was spied. It was totally out of place in the woods. Above the cut log, someone could see a wire cable had been stretched over the ravine. Sees what he thinks. He's like, is that fog? Is that a puff of smoke? I don't know what that is. So he's looking, he's reporting it. At the same time, the SWAT guys are like smelling something and then they see what is smoke. So there's confirmation that it's from this general area. And and everybody knows that the woods have been closed to hikers. Yes. So it, it's gotta be, yeah. It's gotta be. So um, again, because it's now a dwelling, we take the GPS coordinates. We, I had a search warrant already written up. I had a detective that had it, had a judge on standby once they come up with the GPS coordinates, we send it to the, the detective who gets a search warrant, and then we have a good search warrant if we have to go in. They found the proverbial needle in a haystack, a camouflaged pipe sticking out of the forest floor. The team radio that they had eyes on the bunker. The GPS coordinates were passed along to the other teams, but due to the conditions, SWAT members were slow to arrive. And in the meantime, a perimeter was set up and positions were taken stealthily as they waited and watched the bunker. Smoke continued to come out through the bunker's chimney in intervals. It was clear that Keller was adding wood and intermittently stoking the fire, which made them feel confident that he had no idea that he was slowly being surrounded. The teams were concerned. They thought he was inside the bunker. The teams had no idea if Keller had fortified the nearby woods with booby traps and they wondered about his cache of weapons. They knew it had to be stashed inside the bunker, locked and loaded. The river side of the bunker appeared to have shooting points, and they knew he had body armor. Throughout the five-day investigation, Peter Keller's motives were still a mystery. Was laying low in the bunker just another part of a larger plan that had started with killing his family? When they were in tactical position, it was time. They called out to Peter Keller, letting him know that he was surrounded. More Murder Chronicles after the break. And this is about, I think, between 2 and 2.30 is when they finally find it and surround it. We make the decision to start hailing, which means they're calling in on, on a bullhorn. And they're calling his name. They're saying, you're surrounded. Please come out. But there was no word from the bunker, and Keller didn't come out. The team responded by sending two deputies who stealthily crept up to the bunker and deployed tear gas down the back wall. They quickly ran for cover, and the sergeant once again called for Keller to come out with his hands up. One of the SWAT guys later reports that after they're setting in, I think they sent in two or three, uh, they heard a pop, but they thought 
it was one of the CS canisters. So that's 2.30. They're still hailing. They're still calling in. No response, no response, no response. They can't find any way in that's easy. They believe the pop that they'd heard could have been a muffled gunshot, but was more likely the sound of the gas grenade delivering its payload. The team also, at the time of the pop, observed the stovepipe that came out of the bunker shake violently for several seconds. Again, the sergeant shouted for Keller to come out. And again, nothing. More chemical smoke grenades were launched into the protruding chimney, and it wasn't clear if Keller had a gas mask inside, which would allow him to withstand the gas. But they knew that even wearing a mask, it would be uncomfortable. And they wondered, did he have some secret exit strategy that they hadn't seen? The whole time that they're going up there, we know that he's got rifles. We know that he's got a police scanner. So the, the media relations sergeant, Cindy West, is doing a fantastic job with the media and they're not reporting any of this. That is With amazing. With the promise that as we get things, we'll give it to them. So we'd give little tidbits. We'd promise, you know, we've got Dole things coming. Out. Don't let it out. Don't let it out because it could hurt our officers that are up there. Because we know, again, he's got a scanner. He's got all these rifles. We don't know if he's set up. So as they're hailing, we don't know if they have people, you know, they have their SWAT guys on lookout look because we don't know if he's off somewhere with a rifle and a scope, take any of them out. He could be anywhere. We don't know if he's got video cameras. We don't know anything. At 4 o'clock, they decided to call it quits for the day. The exhausted teams needed to get out before dark. A Seattle Police Department SWAT team had been called in, and they would maintain a security perimeter overnight. The sheriff's office teams would redeploy early the next morning, a Saturday. They ended up uh, walking out, some of them slipping out, some of them sliding. Uh, there were two injuries, one an ankle injury that had to be taken to the hospital. They were so cold and dehydrated that I remember one of the sergeant's fists were like closed, we ended up having to like pry his hand open to try to get his gear off of him. Had King County medics there and I actually had to, you know, they were offered uh, IVs and a lot of them were like, oh no, I got it. And I had to sit them down and say, no, you need to just take, take a damn IV. This is ridiculous. Some of them did. Some of them left and had to go to the hospital later that night. Some of the SPD guys overnight had hypothermia because they weren't prepared either for as cold as it got. Early the next morning, instead of traversing down the mountain, the team was inserted over the bunker via a helicopter. And as they had the day before, when they were in position at the bunker, they called out for Peter Keller to surrender. And again, there was no response. An explosive charge was attached to the bunker's fern-covered hatch. Keller had covered it with six inches of dirt, and over the years, the plant material had made the opening appear to be part of the hillside vegetation. They put detonation cord around the top of the bunker, and they, they thought it was enough that it would blow it right off. It blew it enough to where it, it came up and then back down, so they still had to pry it open. This thing was well built. Here's actual audio from that blast. I heard frag go behind us. 
Fragments from the bunker blew out, and when the dust settled, a deputy moved to the hatch. The explosive had separated some of the cross timbers, but he could see a body was on the bottom level, next to a wood stove, obviously in rigor mortis. The pop that they'd heard the day before was Peter Keller taking his own life. He'd shot himself in the head on the top floor. A pool of blood was there, and so was a Glock. It was obvious that when Keller had shot himself, his body had fallen down the ladder to the lower level. And as the deputy stood over the bunker, he radioed, He's triple two, which was the department's code for deceased. Later, they would find a radio in his hand, proof that he'd been monitoring media reports. Once everything happened, um, and I told the sister and the family what you know that we found him, she wanted absolute confirmation. You look at him, you tell me that's him. So when they brought him down by helicopter, because they ended up putting him in, um, in a basket, basically, and bringing him down, I went, looked, made sure it was him, called her, yes, absolutely, it's him. As investigators processed this bunker, they were shocked. I mean, it, it was amazing that it was so well built and well stocked with food and water and and ammunition and I mean everything tools and he had the beginning of what would be a water wheel for power later on he had propane he had um, lighting he had he had a computer so what what I found interesting was as much preparation as he as he took in building this getting all these supplies up there, all the rifles, all the ammunition, the scanner, the money, I mean, everything. He didn't have the scanner. He, the scanner was in a plastic bag. He didn't have it on. He didn't, he never thought that we would be looking for him at that point. Um, most of the rifles were disassembled because he brought them in and disassembled in backpacks. They were still in parts. He was in his socks and sweats. So he didn't think. Hubris. I mean, I mean this guy has yeah, it all he, over the he place. He had the idea that we were going to be knocking on his bunker. How did he get all this gear to that bunker if these guys are struggling? They were going up. He was, so we think there were times where he would bike along the power lines, power line road, leave his bike, and then go down different ways with so, a big backpack. He was, he was carting in ammo, weapons, food, cement in gallon-sized bags because he had cement footings in the in the bunker. I mean, the bunker went from one, you know, like a deep cave kind of a thing. It, it almost, by the time it was done, it almost was like a log cabin. It went deep in, and then it was three levels up. So three levels up, and on each level, he had storage and then a sleeping area. And he had lights. He had... A uh, garbage can that he turned, uh, like a, a metal garbage can that he had turned into a heating source and a cooking source that vented out. Keller had spent eight years constructing this elaborate bunker. The main floor was roughly 22 feet long and about eight feet wide, with a smaller second level, and a wooden ladder connected the two. They would find more than $48,000 in cash in the bunker. Also inside the bunker, they found the gun that was used to kill Lynette and Kayleen. And a video diary that had been shot by Peter Keller two weeks before the murders of his family. 
in these videos, he wears a gray sweatshirt, appears doughy-faced. He's a middle-aged man with a receding hairline. His double chin is covered with stubble as he looks into the lens of the camera and presses record. Well, it's about two weeks before we finally drop out of society, fully commit to this. Uh, this is probably going to be my last video until after that. I just wanted to get one last video in before uh, that time. So far, I've come to terms with it. I'm doing okay. It's starting to accept it. It doesn't really freak me out anymore like it did sometimes. Um, today is probably the nicest day it's been in a long time. As you can see, I have about three loads left before the final. Um, been doing pretty good lately, getting about two loads up a week, about 100 pounds each week now of supplies and material. Um, this winter's been pretty brutal. It's been really slowing me down. I was hoping to be done about a month ago, but it's just constantly snowed, and last month has just been really, really wet and rainy, and uh, it's just, just going to do anything for a long time, but I'm hoping now that uh, the weather's going to change. It looks like it's getting better. It's starting to switch over. can finally get everything up here and finish this off, finally do what I have to do and get it out of the way. At this point, I don't know what's going to happen. It, I may get uh, caught right away. Basically, if I get caught, I'm just going to shoot myself. So, I mean, I could basically be dead in two weeks or three weeks. I don't know. It's all up to chance at this point. So, I don't think anyone knows where I'm at. But if they put it together, who knows? At this point, I have to take that chance. So, it's just going to be a point of, you know, go as far as I can. I, I do have my escape, and that's death. <laughs> I can always shoot myself, and I'm okay with that. So, I'm getting to the point where I'm just trying to live and pay bills and live as a civilian and go to work, I just it just freaks me out. It's actually more comfortable for me to think about living out here, um, robbing banks, pharmacies, just taking what I want for as long as I can. At least it'll be exciting, it won't be boring, and I don't have to worry about Lynette or Kayleen, and everything will be taken care of, it'll just be me. The evilness of Peter Keller's plans is shocking, that for eight years, he went out every weekend, except one time because of weather conditions, that he carried these supplies, 30 to 40 pounds, a trip, that he dug out the mountainside, hewed his own lumber, as he planned to murder his family. Well, before, you know, a while ago, I used to sit here and think, you know, this whole thing is just crazy at times, and then I think about it, and and it would make sense, and it's like, okay, this is what i got to do. But, uh, you know, now, 
I guess with time. I just think that way all the time. That this is what I gotta do to I don't even question it anymore. It just seems like everything makes so much sense now. Um, you know, just the more I've thought about it, the more I understand it. I don't really feel bad about it. It's just the way it is. You know, certain things happen cause this to happen. So, just kind of accepted it and just rolling with it. Before investigators left the bunker scene, the bunker was dismantled and filled in with dirt and logs. And even though it's been more than a decade since Peter Keller murdered his family, Robin says she still doesn't have an answer as to why. He talks about Lynette, and Lynette had been uh, injured in an accident, uh, in, I think in 2007, had back injury, um, couldn't work, uh, was in pain a lot, and was on lots of medication for pain. Well, we discovered in our investigation, and because we found a ton of it, up in the bunker, he had been siphoning off of her pain meds. So she was irritable because she wasn't, she couldn't, she thought she, she's like, I'm sure thinking, I can't believe I've gone through this many pain meds already, struggling with, am I, you know, I, I, you know, I can't get any more and I'm in pain, but, you know, and so she was, she would be grumpy, I'm sure. I mean, if you're in that much pain, I, I would think so. So he talked about how he was going to kill his family. He said that he was going to, uh, that Lynette couldn't survive without him. So it was almost like he was saying, he was extremely narcissistic in that, I'm going to kill her because she can't live without me. And I'm going to kill Kayleen because she's just like me and my wife and that she is socially awkward and I don't think she's going to survive well without me of these photos. He could have just disappeared and done exactly what he wanted to do. Was he narcissistic in that he thought no one else could survive in his family without him? I mean, even to the point where his dog was his baby. Dino was his baby. And he kills his dog instead of just letting it run loose in the, you know, in the neighborhood. Someone would have found him. Lynette was a loving mother who was going through a rough patch because of an injury that she'd sustained at work. But despite that, she was always there for her daughter and found joy in scrapbooking. And she shared this passion with others on her YouTube channel. This video was made just a few days before her murder. Yeah, <laughs> but anyways, I am going to start off with my haul, but I wanted to show you guys something first. So my friend Evelyn, and I'm gonna put a link on the bottom um, after my husband uploads this. He's so sweet. I've been so upset that my webcam hasn't been working because you guys know if I don't do videos, it's either because I'm in pain or I just can't get my webcam to work. And so I don't like doing the videos on the cameras or my phone because I just always forget on how to do it. And I hate bugging my, my husband and my daughter. But anyways, he, he set this up for me, so he's like really sweet. And I'm so excited because I can actually afford these, um, these, these deals. My husband, <laughs> he gave me some money to, to go in here, so I'm like so excited. 
At the time of her death, Kayleen was a student at Bellevue College and was working as a video game tester. She had a bright future ahead of her. Here's Kayleen at her high school graduation. Kayleen Keller. The Murder Chronicles is a Cavalry Audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.